Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast all about the great books of the Western tradition. I am Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And we are today, and today we are going to be discussing The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. Um, now, this is, this is going to be, I think, probably one of the, the works that you know, clearly fits into the idea of this podcast, right? It's clearly one where it's like, we are talking about classic works in the Western canon. Any list of it would include this book. It's also our first work of Latin, right? We haven't read anything mm-hmm. that was written in, uh, in, God's in language. Latin so far. <laughs> um, I think that this is probably the most explicit work of like Christian theology that we're going to read in season one. Is that correct? Which is, is there... which is interesting because, um, I mean, I agree with you. I think this is yeah. explicitly Christian theology. However, a good number of, not maybe not a good number of scholars, but there is a scholarly opinion that Boethius was not a Christian. Um, oh, interesting. And he was sort of a Neoplatonist. In fact, I, I believe that it's discussed in the in the intro to the Penguin Classics edition that, that it's possible that Boethius was not a Christian. Um, oh, I think that he was, and I think you would be hard pressed to make. I, I, I find the case to be very tenuous at best that he wasn't a Christian. Yeah, interesting. So it would seem like I could kind of see how one would make the case. He's much more likely to cite sort of like the teachings of Plato than he is like the quotations of Jesus, for instance, in the in the in this work. Um, but I think to make the case really convincingly, you would have to show how these two things aren't in conflict there are there are a few things in this work that would really kind of sell me on this like that this is written kind of with an eye towards being a christian work um one of them is of course when we're talking about there being a a natural order to things um boethius lady philosophy tells boethius that it's love that provides the natural order Mm -hmm. and the the idea of uh, the idea of identifying God with love as opposed to God with the rational order or actually putting love and the rational order together, that's like a distinctively Christian Neoplatonist move. Um, I would think – I don't think you can see that in non-Christian Neoplatonism. You're right. He does not ever specifically really quote the scriptures um, yeah. or or other – church father figures who who were prevalent at that time but there are so many i think allu- subtle allusions i mean even and we'll talk about this in a moment but even the fact that it's lady philosophy who appears to him i think clearly has mariological ecclesiological images yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um and so uh, yeah it's he's maybe subtle about it and he's also writing in a time when the roman emperor the one who ended up um who ended up being responsible for his execution was um Christian, but of a sort of heretical variety. Um, uh, I think yeah, he was Arian. Yeah, um, and so it's possible that Boethius had to be somewhat careful about what he invoked and how he did it. This is my fault, but I think we jumped way too far ahead too fast because I was like, let's talk. We suddenly, suddenly we're talking about um, sort of the specifics of the text. But let's, like give, let's give the, the listener or the viewer a sort of broader view of what this text is kind of about. Right? And I think mm. that if I were coming up with sort of my summary of what the Constellation of Philosophy is and also my sort of argument for why you should read it, right? And, and, and that argument also has to include lots of secular readers, right, who, who would read it because the majority of the people who listen to this um, are going to come from a, a, a wide variety of backgrounds, right? And I, and I think that the argument I would 
the way I would describe this is that this is a work of, I would say, Christian Neoplatonism, where it is beautifully written, and it is engaging in a prolonged argument for why one ought to study philosophy and the value that philosophy will have for you. In order to make that argument, Boethius has to also talk about what is the meaning and purpose of life? What is the source? What is the source of value? What is the nature of necessity? Um, how does how, how does one lose one sense of self if if one is sort of distracted from these things? Uh, and so, really, all of these almost like existentially relevant or kind of very humanistic elements uh, in philosophy that often would come up in Greek philosophy, but maybe get downplayed in later era, eras, they're all found in this text, um, and. It's really short. So, like, if you think that maybe it's worth reading, it's, like, 150 pages or something in the, in the edition that I'm reading. And so, at most, you will only waste a few hours. Uh, <laughs> so, But I don't think it would actually be a waste. I actually think it'll be something that would prove quite beneficial and, and pretty uh, – uh, as a good illustration of what philosophy was sort of in this era, which would be like, what, 5th or 6th century um, sixth century Rome, 6th yeah. century Rome, uh, which is an era of philosophy a lot of people overlook. You know, when, we, when you're studying philosophy, a lot of people talk about ancient philosophy, and then maybe we mention a few people that happened after Aristotle. Um, but then we kind of just go to, like, the modern period. You know, so many schools will do that. So uh, paying a little bit more attention to almost a proto-scholastic you know, if we want to keep throwing out some jargon, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think of that? Uh, that sort of pitch on why you should read Boethius? Absolutely. Um, I think. I think one of the nice things about this book and and its structure, and we should say probably something about the structure of the book a little bit yeah. in, in order to make this point, is that you know this is not Boethius merely pontificating in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book opens, and he has been condemned to death. Boethius was a uh, was a politician um, because he had read Plato and he bought the ideals of the Republic, and so he joined public service, and um, and he was commendable, a virtuous person from what we can tell based on the historical record, and it's actually potentially his honesty and virtuous uh, life that got him in trouble, um, mm-hmm. where he, it seems like he was conspired against by some other people in the king's court. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the king at the time was a sort of was an Arian Christian, which is a, a sort of heretical uh, sect within Christianity, and so I think that complicated things a little bit too. But um, so the book opens with him sitting in his study, uh, weeping because he's been condemned to death. He's lost his money, he's lost his power, he's lost um, his influence. And uh, Lady Philosophy comes to him and and begins to console him and kind of bring him. Um, help him reason through his experience and um and help him situate himself uh within his within the uh shifting events that have occurred in his life i think what i like about this and what i think can make it really helpful for people is so that is for them to help understand that philosophy is not purely abstract that there is a lived element if if i mean the root word you know it's the love of wisdom uh that has practical bearing. And I think that's what Lady Philosophy begins to help Boethius see. Um, It may not always be the practical bearing you want, you know, it may not get you the most amount of money or the most uh, popularity or whatever, um, but it will help you to live a better life. Yeah, exactly. And, And I think that's, it's such a fun 
part of the text actually that so you know if, if we're thinking of like one major argument that's going to be made in this it's that philosophy will lead to a good life but the, the text actually begins it doesn't say this explicitly you have to kind of wait a chapter or two to to get into it but um because boethius loved philosophy and he loved plato he goes into public service like you said and that leads to his downfall. It leads to his material, his material downfall. So this is a man who's actually going to make an argument that philosophy has made his life better when understood by maybe, let's just say, the standards, the ordinary standards of the world. Philosophy has actually made this man demonstrably better, uh, worse off. Uh, and it's actually been a very hard life uh, for him, or it's becoming a hard life uh, for him. And so he... I mean, if anything, it's it's kind of this remarkable idea. I mean, there's something so beautiful about the fact that, that Boethius is able to think this way while in prison. Because he's actually, he is writing it in prison. He is telling his own story. And he puts all of the best points in the mouth of of, of Lady Philosophy. <laughs> he does not put um, any of the good points in his own mouth. Right. And <laughs> is willing to even make himself look quite obtuse at times. I think that there are strong stylistic parallels with uh platonic dialogues you know this sort of i mean it's not as if plato was the only one who wrote dialogues but you can definitely see uh stylistic parallels and and one of the things that kind of annoyed my students when i would teach platonic dialogues and almost to like the point of it being a joke is that the way sometimes platonic dialogues can go is that socrates is like surely you think that x and then the only the, the only role that the interlocutor has for like a page is to say like undoubtedly Socrates and then he, and then he'll say more and then they'll say you still speak truly Socrates and um and that person's almost always like the patsy or like the idiot in in the dialogue and um, and Boethius is that one he, he that's yeah. the role he plays he's a holy <laughs> fool sort yeah of. <laughs> yeah 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 so he is the one who takes on ignorance yeah. basically for the sake of our own learning. I, I do have a, a theory kind of to tie the point you're making to the earlier conversation we were having about the nature of, of whether this is a Christian work, which is that it is in many ways a, a, a new kind of platonic dialogue or, or a Christianized platonic dialogue. But it's also in my reading of it, in some ways, a kind of Greco-Roman retelling of, of Job. Um, oh, okay. In yeah. some ways, yeah. I think I think there are some, some Jobin allusions. I mean, this idea of, you know, being kind of highly favored being very prosperous successful losing all of it and then even in the even in the depths of that having the sort of fortitude to say well actually the thing that the thing that i've based my life on is still significant even despite the changing circumstances yeah that's a really nice point so so for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar the story of job roughly is a story of a very prosperous man and then um there is sort of this almost bargain struck between god and satan to see if Job will sort of renounce his faith or piety in God um, if all of his material goods are taken away. So uh, his wealth is taken away, his, his children die, um, like he goes through all of this stuff, he loses his own health, and so much of that, uh, of that book of the Bible is essentially Job being berated by his friends or his, sometimes his wife, and, you know... Um, because they all share this, this worldview... Even Job has this worldview, I think, at first, that if you do good things, good material things will happen to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this is based, I think, from a really exaggerated reading of, like, the Proverbs. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, it's certainly true that if you act wisely, then you know generally good things will happen, but uh, not always, not universally true. Yeah. So they have a very rigid view of the universe. It's almost like a cosmic ledger book. You know, if yeah, this, yeah. then that. Yeah, and, and then. Oh, and, and, and another strong sort of parallel is this, is that the end of Job is a very strange ending where it's yeah. like God saying basically like, I am sort of the force of providence, right? Like I am like this uh, and really kind of emphasizing there's a reason Calvin is like the book of Job. They like the end of the book of Job quite a bit, right? Because it's like God is willing everything and, and, and such. And and the book, uh, Constellation of Philosophy, ends with a prolonged discussion about necessity and providence mm-hmm. and its relation to the human will. I think the ending of the book of Job, you know, God finally comes to Job after chapters of Job kind of wondering, you know, what is going on with all these circumstances in my life? Why is everything so horrible when I've been a, a pretty good guy and I've tried to live wisely and, and justly? And um, and God never gives him a full answer to why mm-hmm. things yeah. happened in his life the way that it, yeah. he didn't tell him about the bargain in the earlier chapters with the devil or anything like that. He didn't tell him I was testing you to make sure you were really righteous. It, nothing. Yeah. Um, he merely uh, he merely asserts the creator creature distinction. Mm-hmm. I'm God. You're not. You know, where were you when I founded the, the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a sense in which. Boethius as philosopher has us take a similar posture, maybe not exactly, maybe not so dramatically as mm-hmm. as the end of Job, but but in that discussion of of foreknowledge, there is this idea of well, you as the creature stuck in time, simply can't simply can't see why things have been orchestrated the way that they have been, but there are things that nothing can that no one can take away from you, mm-hmm. and circumstances can't take away from you. Yeah. Lady Philosophy, in fact, attributes um, Boethius's complaints about divine foreknowledge and necessity to um, the operation of human reasoning and how it can't approach uh, the immediacy of divine foreknowledge. Right. 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 So it, it is actually a restatement of the creature, um, the creator-creature distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's a, that's a really interesting connection. I, I feel like maybe that will illuminate some of the other things that we say later because I had not thought of the parallels between. Um, you know the book of the book of Job, uh, which also I just want to say for all our listeners, occasionally you know we mention. Well, I mean you and I are both Christians, and so we often will want to make parallels with like Christian scriptures. But one of the things I think both of us believe is that even if you're not a Christian, understanding the Bible gives you almost like a key for understanding a lot of classic Western literature. Uh, it, it's just it's just sort of the idiom by which everyone speaks, and a lot of great books and a lot of great books schools. Uh, where, you know, most of the faculty aren't necessarily explicitly religious or most of the students aren't explicitly religious, will still look at, I mean, like at St. John's College here in Annapolis, they read a good chunk of the Old Testament and a good chunk of the New Testament. Yeah, They yeah. read Anselm, Augustine, Aquinas, etc. because they want to engage in the great conversation, which is something we want to do. And so, you know, we talk about Job, but I, I don't think, I, I think you can have whatever interpretation of Job you want or whatever yeah. view of Job you want in order to still benefit from the conversation between Boethius and Job, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're not here to convince you to take on our particular theological views, but I will argue with anyone about the literary merit of the Bible and its historical relevance. Um, And I think that, you know, the argument is easy to make by appealing to an authority here, which can sometimes be a decent form of argument, despite what some people would say. Uh, um, And it just goes like St. John's College is like the premier 
great books to go <laughs> there like there are there are, there's basically uh no better version of this in higher education and they're making their students read uh read the bible in order to make sense of the rest of the stuff they're going to read and so in the same way being a little bit more familiar with the bible may might make you able to understand something like boethius but let's let's actually get a little bit more into the into the text you know um so the text begins with Boethius actually discussing, or Boethius is is in prison. He is he is wallowing in his sadness. He's being visited by the muses who are like singing singing to him, or this is uh, how he he describes it. And then, um, and he and he, as you said, he's lost everything. And then he is visited by Lady Philosophy, and I think that Lady Philosophy is such an interesting symbolic figure immediately. She has a, um, I believe she has a, a phi and a theta uh, in order to, to represent both um, theoretical or practical knowledge and theoretical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also, it looks as, she has these like, um, these certain, these very keen eyes. She's able to correctly perceive things. Uh, so you, so there's like some descriptions of her body, but also she's covered in dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's covered in the dust of neglect. Uh, it's it, uh, and because Boethius has in his sorrows sort of temporarily forgotten all of the things that he has learned, so he has spent his life studying philosophy and then trying to live out those principles, and then all and then as soon as things go wrong, he's not able to maintain his focus on on philosophy. So Lady Philosophy is coming to him as a like neglected maternal figure. So despite his neglect, she will come to him and administer these medicines, as she describes. That's an interesting I so the dust I I um interpreted more generally. I guess it makes sense that it's specifically Boethius who who's neglected her, but just as a general sort of human tendency to neglect wisdom, because uh, a couple sentences later is where her clothes are torn and the pieces had been ripped off by marauders. Yeah. So I yeah. was assuming that was talking about her lo- or her larger abuse. Um, but Boethius certainly fits point. into that. You're right. Yeah. So I, it might be a larger point because, you know, Lady Philosophy is going to discuss how um, there have been other schools that have arisen that have always taken parts of her, but they have like, or they have taken parts of true knowledge, but they've never, com- they've never had the whole of knowledge. Uh, and she, he actually, I think the the Stoics and the Skeptics are are two of the schools mm-hmm. that get mentioned. Yeah, it's it might be a more general point here, but um, yeah, Boethius at, at the very least has also fallen into this. Um, and I think this is you know, there's a general human tendency, as you said, to neglect knowledge or to neglect wisdom. But there's also and. Um, all of us fall victim to this, right? Whether this is at the individual level um, or it's easy for us collectively to prefer shiny things, to prefer those things which can be immediately alluring or sort of sensuous, uh, meaning just appealing to the senses. Where philosophy, you know, it's it takes effort to think about it a lot. Right? <laughs> it, it, it takes effort to maintain focus on it. Um, and it's not something that one can do immediately or easily. Um, though, you know, I, I, I think we'd want to say if one can properly train oneself to really focus on it, then eventually those other things become less significant, right? Those like those, mm. the, the, the things that now would distract us, um, 
they we we start to see them for what they are, right? Which is sort of less important than sort of being wise or or you know studying higher and eternal things, which is what philosophy offers in this very Platonist conception of philosophy. Yes, yes. When they say the whole knowledge, they're like Neoplatonism. That's the that's the whole. <laughs> right. That's what she means, folks. I do love too how she how she characterizes her effects as using primarily healing metaphors mm-hmm. yeah um that that's what she's going to be doing for boethius um there's this kind of balm she'll be applying through wisdom um on yeah him. so so boethius is like a man who as she says has forgotten who he is and instead of viewing this as someone to be repudiated um um or to, you know to use an old phrase from our uh, uh, American political jargon, perhaps refudiated. Uh, um, <laughs> That's a word uh, I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> so, instead of being repudiated, um, she is here actually to see him for what he is as like a, a man who has lost his way and is needing of correction and of, of healing rather than uh, like of punishment in the traditional sense where punishment is purely retribution right and this is like a a very ancient idea that we can, we can we can see that the idea for instance that some greek philosophers would argue for that like punishment was actually would be would be which is in this book as well punishment would actually be good for the one who who, who has done wrong because it's 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 good for you to get what you deserve to be you know like to be fitted but also it can correct you and it can like sort of reorient you um, you know, and and in that way, it really does feel like a kind of parental love, right? Where sometimes a good parent has to punish a child, um, um, not in not in anger, right? Ideally, right, but with a concern, right? Like, uh, or with with a, a hope for a hope for correction and for you know a better life for for the you know wishing the best for um, for their child. In fact, they say that in um, in book one, uh, section three, she talks about how wisdom fights with her children. Um, why, my child, should I desert you? Why should I not share your labor and the burden you have been saddled with because of your, the hatred of my name? Should I be frightened by being accused or cower in fear as if it were something unprecedented? This is hardly the first time wisdom has been threatened with danger by the forces of evil. So there's this idea... Um, she even says, before the time of my servant Plato, I fought many a great battle against the reckless forces of folly. Um, and then in Plato's own lifetime, his master Socrates was unjustly put to death. Something else we can talk about is that connection between Boethius and Socrates, I think. But um, but that idea that she's kind of in the trenches with him, fighting yeah, alongside yeah, yeah. him, is, yeah. I think, a, a kind of cool way to think about it. Yeah. Um, so what did you... So let me make a, a confession to you about this text as I was sort of struggling with it, which is that when Lady Philosophy was speaking, I was often, like, totally enraptured. I was like, I love this. And then mm. I had a harder time focusing on the verse, which often, which is probably bad because the verse kind of often it serves as, like, a capstone for the discussion. Um, but what did you make of the use? And so I, I had to at least work harder to, to, to read the verse. Right. Um, and this actually shouldn't be that surprising because, like, I don't read very much poetry. Um, mm. But what did you make of the use of verse in this whole text? You know, um, 
what, what why have lady philosophy speak in verse sometimes um it's kind of an odd stylistic choice you might think yeah it is an odd stylistic choice, especially because there has long been a tension between philosophy and poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the philosophers hate poetry. Um, we were talking before we started recording about Soren Kierkegaard, who has um, in his some of his preaching and and in some of his writing too. He's got he creates this whole archetype of the poet, um, who he really uh, he really goes after quite a bit. And of course, it's the the muses of poetry are the ones at the beginning of the book who are sort of helping Boethius wallow in his self-pity and sadness. And um, and the funny line in the very beginning is when Lady Philosophy shows up, she basically uh, says, you know, get those hysterical sluts away from you. You know, the very beginning um, of the of the book, Boethius is expressing that kind of self-pity in poetry, in verse. Mm-hmm. And then Lady Philosophy does, uh, she'll, they'll, they'll dialogue for, for a few pages and then there will be a, a poem. Mm-hmm. kind of summarizing what they have discussed. Um, so, yeah, why? Why would she do that um, when she has told the muses of poetry to go away? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I think there are a few... I think there are a few reasons for this. The first is that, um, well, well, I think Boethius as a philosopher understands the danger of poetry. I do think that he sees it as redeemable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that Lady Philosophy speaks that way uh, does bring a certain dignity to what we might call poetic knowledge um, in that poetry, when it's done well, can help us see the world in a, in a way that uh, merely propositional truth cannot. Yeah. And I think she also knows what tools to use in order to reach Boethius where he is, which, mm-hmm. I mean, he's been condemned to death. He's lost everything. So there is a certain emotional element or effective yeah. aspect that needs to be addressed and poetry can probably do that better than let me give you a five point lecture about um what virtue is and how it might apply in your situation right so there's that and then finally i think there's an aspect of of using the verse that tells us that truth and beauty are connected that that philosophy has an aesthetic wrapped up in it mm-hmm. um and again that aesthetic is best expressed not necessarily using dry syllogisms all the time but also mm-hmm. in using poetry so yeah, i think I that like... it's actually really cool that she uses poetry um i agree sometimes it's hard to read that much poetry like when it's a page and a half or two pages of poetry i i do find it a little hard to to follow but um i always find if i slow down a little and read those sections slowly i i never regret doing it yeah i I love the idea that that wisdom speaks in the idiom that's necessary, right? So that, that that not just for the truth that might need to be communicated, but also for how the um, for how the the hearer might need to hear something at the time. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that wisdom will like mislead when when necessary or something. That that's not right. We 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 have this kind of overall commitment to the truth. But rather that um, your choice of rhetorical delivery is a choice, and uh, that the content that you are saying might somehow limit your choices, but it very rarely strictly dictates the choice of rhetoric and uh, and, and sort of the, the rhetorical mode. And so, for us, um, we can we can take a lesson from this, which is to think when we are trying to communicate with someone 
some deep truth about philosophy, something or about theology or about history or about literature, any of this stuff, to think about what is the rhetorical mode that is most appropriate for our circumstances, for our audience. In fact, the flexibility that allows you to choose is itself an expression of wisdom, I think, you know, that mm -hmm. you can that you can articulate the same idea in a lecture versus a one-on-one -on -one counseling session versus a, mm -hmm. you know, poetry jam session, I think really would kind of prove that you you are in fact wise whereas if you could yeah. only express that truth in lecture form or in one of the other forms then you're you're missing something. And a and a good way I think and and something that that lady philosophy does and Socrates does and and a number of other great thinkers is you know you you do this best when you ask a lot of questions with yeah. your interlocutor I think because you you begin to figure out where they are and then can you can you can often see the um the what's really going on under the surface when you ask questions mm -hmm. just like lady philosophy does for Boethius you know um I, somebody I forgot who it was said that the now is the expression of the complex root system that is the before. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the whatever the present issue is, you know, whatever Boethius's problem is at the beginning of this book is not isolated. It There's a whole network of things going on under the surface. And so she, instead of merely coming out and saying, well, Boethius, you know, stop being such a big baby, stop being, complaining, you know, just yeah. take it like, like a stoic should or whatever. She really, she diagnoses the problem first. And that goes back to that medicinal healing imagery. Yeah, you know, this is this is going to come up a lot more in other stuff that I'm doing, because um, uh, I've been thinking a lot about stoicism lately, just about mm -hmm. like reading some of this stuff, and but also about like popular appropriations of stoicism, and right. I, I say it really bums me out that stoicism um, or any of this stuff is conflated with a kind of um, machismo. Like being like right. being like alpha or something, where you should just like be able to grit your teeth and bear it or something like that, because when you put it in those terms, it's actually ruining the message because it's mm. still so the best parts of like these uh, that you can find in both Stoicism and in Neoplatonism of this like looking to the interior life and thinking philosophically in the life of the mind for contentment and for for like joy and flourishing. Um, those if you if you if you put it that in terms of like and that will allow you to dominate in the world right what you have done is actually rob it of its interior value you're still mm -hmm. defining it in terms of the world like you're you, you're still you're taking you know so the the proper stoic shouldn't say something like um you need to cultivate a life of discipline internally so that you can dominate the boardroom Right. No, no. You should learn to not care about the boardroom. <laughs> like you should be unaffected by the boardroom, or you know any any of these things. Even if that's an environment that you find yourself in, and so you know it. And so, um, but I think that in popular appropriations of this kind of philosophy, they want to turn it into just another version of materialism. Really, just mm -hmm. another version of um, of almost a utilitarian calculus of. Like, let's let material circumstances define our happiness, right? Because what do you do if you end up not being an alpha and you've, and you've uh, done all these stoic reflections or something, right? 
Which is funny because, yeah, I mean, uh, Lady Philosophy certainly does not want Boethius to be any sort of alpha. I mean, it's not about asserting his dominance at all. Yeah. Um, you know, one of his complaints in um, in Chapter 5 of Book 1, you know, is that, that he submitted to uh, divine governance or, or wisdom's governance. He um, he's uh, He's done all this stuff right. And look what has happened to him. And she tells him that, that her concern is not with the walls of his library, but with the seat of his mind. You know, in other words, it doesn't really matter what happens so long as, as you have the virtues that wisdom imparts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. But, but that kind of, but that, that, that almost is not, not passivity to the world, but that kind of, uh, being above reactionism, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 flies in the face of exactly what you're talking about. I think. exactly. I, I think it's like not passivity. I was thinking of almost turning it. Uh, it's it, it, it's um being impassable, which mm-hmm. is a, a little mm-hmm. bit different, right? Not just like going along with the world in whatever way, but at least your interior life is impassable, so that you can take comfort in. Um, these these internal both your internal life and the sort of external but by this we mean like sort of the eternal things that we can contemplate when we talk about philosophy right those are your sources of of contentment so that then the external material world just becomes a matter of um yeah you become impassable and by impassable here we just mean you're not sort of causally affected by it so i'm using passable right. in a slightly metaphorical sense because you can still of course be causally affected by the world but it's emotionally you are impassable i mean a good parallel would be parenting again right i mean you try and instill in your children certain values and the hope is that um when they're around their friends you know that those values would be unchanged by the action you know resist peer pressure i mean that's a really important lesson we try to teach kids you know your friends will say do x y and z and that'll make you cool but here's what's important, and if you want to pursue what's important, you won't go along with that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean being a jerk and saying, you know, telling them what to do or, or that they can't do whatever. Um, but it does mean, you know, uh, standing kind of strong on your own convictions and, and not yeah, just going yeah. around along with the crowd. So there is practical application to all this, which I think is Lady Philosophy's whole point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be it would be it it would be shocking if philosophy ended up in a place where it could have no practical applications at all, right? Which is what right. most people commonly think think about philosophy. But it's also not true that philosophy thus, in an effort to be practical, should um, reduce itself to being merely about the practical, right? So it should only it should not just be about practical reason. And and this is in this book Philosophy is is both theoretical and practical. That's that's the symbolism uh, on on Lady Philosophy's dress, and in fact, the theoretical is superior to the practical in, on this conception of philosophy. Mm-hmm. But the theoretical is the foundation for the practical, right? right. So the, the so the practical does occur. There is practical philosophy here, but it's it, there's no practical philosophy without um, theoretical theoretical philosophy, and in fact. You know, I think that when you teach your kids about peer pressure, for instance, one method you could do is just like 
you don't do it right like you you do this instead of what your your kids say and i think that's probably a hard sell because if it's just like a rule with no grounding and justification as soon as it becomes cool to do what your uh, your kids want you or your friends want you to do you do it right mm-hmm. but if you can instead ground the rule in something stronger right in something higher mm. right it, 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 in in a more general point that you can kind of help the kid hold fixed in their mind right then maybe the resistance to peer pressure is a little bit easier yeah yeah for sure um i've done that in the classroom before classroom management tactic what kind of things are important for us as a class mm. for this yeah. class to be successful yeah Just write them on the board you know these are the goals you know civility yeah. um politeness mm-hmm. you know all these kind of things and so then it's like okay so then what are some rules we could put in place that help us get which is the virtue of prudence oh, right yeah. knowing the means yeah. to the end mm-hmm. um so absolutely yeah if you by explaining the purpose of something you are opening the door i think for for people so there there has to be the marriage of practical and and theoretical could we talk a little bit about uh fortune and self-discovery yeah. Sort of the yeah. tension between those two things. Yeah. Okay, so well there's one major theme in the in in this work actually about why we can't let material things or our possessions actually dictate our happiness. And there are these arguments about because what has been given to us materially is actually just a matter of fortune. This is like fortune with a capital F in my in in my edition. And it's on the cover too. There's the wheel. Oh, the Wheel of Fortune. On the cover, right? which is the yeah. fortune, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are um, – and one of the arguments that goes is roughly that, like, what was a matter – like, fortune by its nature will give and will take. So it's not as if we can, like, blame fortune for when we lose things um, because there is no necessity involved. And, in fact, uh, Lady Philosophy describes fortune as saying something like, how can you blame me for just being what I am? Right. Um, but the things that fortune can take away are not actually the sort of the meaning conferring things in our lives. They are, um, they are sort of by their nature fleeting. And there's definitely this idea that fleeting things not only are less valuable, but sort of ultimately aren't valuable. Um, Mm. figuring out the argument for that might be a little tricky, but that certainly is something, you know, uh, is something that I think Boethius would endorse. There's a, I think there's, in one of the poems uh, in book two, section two, um, though God should gratify their prayers with open-handed gifts of gold and furbished greed with pride of rank, all that God gave would seem as not. Um, I think the idea with fortune is, I mean, yes, there's a sense in which some of the things fortune can give are actually distractions, but there is a kind of open-handedness uh, in terms of our posture towards fortune, you know. In other words, um, you know, uh, a, a priest might preach a really great sermon and only five people hear it. Mm-hmm. But that only five people hear it is not necessarily his fault. You know, I mean, it, there's a whole plethora of factors that might go into why there are only five people there. Um, or, or same thing with a podcast or, or a YouTube video or whatever, you know, we might, 
Uh, you might say things that are worth listening to that not that many people listen to, but you don't really, I mean, you can do certain things. You can advertise and you can be smart and strategic about, about how you market and all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, I mean, you're not the one making someone click. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the algorithm is. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> their free will is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but there is an open-handedness towards, towards Fortune. And if Fortune can give you something that it can also take away intrinsically that thing can't be as meaningful to you mm-hmm. yeah um so like for example i mean you know one time i went to a casino uh time for me to make a confession i guess um and uh you know i brought 25 bucks yeah right and i i uh played baccarat and i got up to 50 bucks mm-hmm. and i thought i should probably walk away yeah. but wouldn't it be cool if i could get to 75 bucks um yeah. and so i kept playing and i lost all my money yeah. Um, can I really be that mad about the money that I lost? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Boethius would say no, not really. I mean, maybe it was unwise for me to bring the $25 in the first place, but that I was up high and then I went low. I mean, that's the nature of fortune. And yeah. I spun the wheel and I lost, uh, as many people do in the um, in the casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't. I don't stay up at night thinking about that $25. Yeah. Um, I also, I've also gone to a casino one time. I played two rounds hmm. of blackjack. I walked out with ten more dollars than what I made, and I've decided that hey. I'm like I'm gonna die the only man in history who's up on the casinos. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can never go back. <laughs> but but uh, um, you know, but also uh, a nice point that Lady Philosophy makes with Boethius is like he's focusing on so much of things that he has lost, um, and letting actually his loss dominate his focus and attention. And not focusing on the things he hasn't lost. Right. His father-in-law is still this re- this reputable man who's, like, virtuous, and he still has – his wife is, like, um, I think described as, like, having all of these various virtues that you would traditionally ascribe. You know, like, whatever you thought, like, a good Roman wife was, right? Um, he, he Like, that was her. He has actually two powerful sons who have done well. Mm-hmm. So he's focusing so much on the things that he doesn't have to the point where he is no longer – able to pay attention to the things that he still has right so even if eventually we want to get you to the point where you want to say um but none of that should be determinative of like your true happiness or joy because that can be found in contemplation or something still there is something there's something very strange about the way that we treat fortune where we almost take for granted the things that fortune gives and then mourn the things that 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 fortune takes away as if they only mattered to us they were only valuable once they were gone right right like it, it, it's a whole weird inversion of um of what you would think where you know perhaps the better attitude is to be incredibly thankful for them when you have them and then to um to try to disregard them as best you can once they're gone right to to mm-hmm. act as if they were mm-hmm. never truly yours yeah. And one point Lady Philosophy makes about this, too, is that, you know, Boethius is very um, myopic in the way that he's in the way that he's reacting to fortune. The reason this is so hard for him, she says, is because he's had such a privileged life because of all that fortune has mm-hmm. given him that yeah. this is the first time he's experienced a negative reversal of fortune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like he doesn't he can't. He's kind of blind to the to the larger picture. And then, you know, all of this, I think, ultimately can tie into this broader topic that's kind of found throughout uh, the dialogue, which is, as you as we've kind of hinted at here, 
it's it's the discovery of actually who you truly are right mm -hmm. and it's the discovery there's one way of reading some of this where the discovery of who you truly are for Boethius is just being reminded of the fact that you've studied philosophy and that you should sort of be better than what you are now. And, and that would be a fine reading for parts of it, right? But there's a, there's, a, there's a more important or bigger point that's being made too, which is to being recalling what human nature is, like who, who you are as a human being. And that, in fact, I believe that there's at least one passage, I'd have to go digging for it in my, in my note cards about this, but that of forgetting his human nature is in fact one of one of Boethius's uh shortcomings and i think that's where you know it's really helpful to use a much later philosopher possibly to think about this um a philosopher that i don't think either of us are super fond of but this vocabulary can be useful and to think of um of jeremy bentham when he talks about the higher and the lower pleasures um and and you know it's useful to actually have or Jeremy Bentham and also John Stuart Mill talk about this, so the utilitarians. And eventually the utilitarians introduce a distinction between higher pleasures and lower pleasures. The lower ple pleasures um, would sometimes be described as base by the, by the, by the ancients, uh, but they are the sorts of pleasures that are available to animals. Um, and wealth really kind of can eventually boil down to lower, pl lower pressure, pleasures because it's, about your com it's going to be about comfort and security. And about, you know, it's going to be about food and drink and things like this. Um, but the higher pleasures there are the intellectual pleasures and certain, I, would, I, I, would, I wouldn't call them just intellectual because like feelings of deep affection and like love, right? Are, are, humans are characteristically capable of this in, in, in a way that goes beyond what animals are capable of. These are much higher pleasures. And um, Boethius is entirely capable of having all of those higher pleasures in his circumstances. It's just that most of his lo his lower pleasures have been taken away. And so in a way, by focusing too much on those lower, those lower pl pleasures, he is actually forgetting that he is a human being. He's forget, and you know, he's almost made himself as if he were an animal. And philosophy helps us recall that we are human beings. Hmm. Probably would be helpful to explain how he defines human being, which is a rational and mortal man or um, animal. Yeah. Sorry, rational and mortal animal. Um, and I think those are both really important when we're talking about philosophy. I mean, obviously, the rational component, especially for the medievals, is that's where I mean, for many medieval philosophers and theologians in the rational capacity is where uh, the image of God is located, mm -hmm. right? That's something that can't be taken away from us. Mm -hmm. um, it can be darkened or it can be kind of scarred through vice. And that's not even a uniquely Christian uh, conviction. That's a, that's a Platonist conviction too, um, that, that, that that can be uh, diminished, but it never goes away. You know, that's still there. Um, and then our mortality, meaning that we're finite beings, you know. And so I think this is why... For Lady Philosophy, it's such a tragedy to see Boethius kind of buy into the, these false uh, selves um, or false visions of the good life because he's not fully grappling with his rationality mm -hmm. and his mortality. You know, um, the wealth will go away. You know, you can't take it with you. Um, whatever you think about the afterlife, uh, he who dies with the most toys does not win, you know. Um, and so what, what then do we direct our attention to? And for Boethius, um, the, the highest happiness, the highest virtue, you know, is, is sort of contemplation of the divine. 
Um, but it very much fits in with that very hierarchical uh, medieval Platonist view of the universe, you know, where there's this order. So, you know, is, is sex a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's good, but within a proper context, it's not the end to itself. Mm, you know, yeah. is riches a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's it can be fine, but it's got to be used in the right way, making it a lower good, whereas, you know, when we get to the contemplation of the divine, we've reached the sort of pinnacle of, of what it means to be a rational and mortal animal mm. um, because we can do that. You know, my dog doesn't sit and think about existential uh, questions about her relationship to God. Yeah. Um, yeah. She needs to think about that more. I yeah. Think. Um, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, I think we've probably hit on every major theme I wanted to talk about. And, you know, we're at a, we're at a solid hour that I think um, or will be just under uh, after this has been edited down a little bit so I guess this sort of leaves us at our our natural ending place here which is you know to summarize it Boethius is reminding us of the value of studying philosophy and part of that is always going to be linked to reminding us of our human nature and what we are what we are as human beings and so anyone who is interested in those kinds of questions this is actually, I think, a remarkably kind of accessible book for it. Um, it doesn't seem like that way at first because it seems a little dry. But I think it's, it's as readable, perhaps even more, than some of the Platonic dialogues that I would recommend to like mm-hmm. beginners. Right? So, um, so I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this to really think about reading Boethius. If you haven't read it yet, go read it. You'll probably find it much more interesting than how we could describe it. Um, we, we tried our best, but you know, uh, and I, and so I think we should just move on to, uh, to end notes, right? So listeners, we always have this little segment at the end of our, uh, episodes where we try to describe or we, where we try to recommend something to you that we think is relevant to what we've read, but you know, might take you in a slightly different direction or could just be fun for you. So Wesley, what, what do you have for end notes this time? Yeah, so uh, medieval philosophy and theology is something I find very interesting. Um, Boethius, of course, was very important um, in that context. I think the later medievals really drew from a lot of what he um, talked about and said. Um, I found notes of of much later uh, philosophical uh, arguments. For example, Anselm's ontological argument is is in the text. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but he makes um, Boethius makes a proto ontological uh, argument. Um, so one figure I really love in the medieval period uh, is a, a guy named Hugh of St. Victor. In fact, I'm doing my thesis on Hugh of St. Victor. Um, Hugh is very influenced by Boethius, especially his anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, but a book that Hugh wrote um, that I think is, is really helpful in understanding the medieval period a little better, especially how they thought about education and reading and the pursuit of knowledge and the higher things, is this book, The Didascalicon of Hugh of St. Victor. And basically what it is, is a curriculum uh, proposal. He's saying, here's what you need to study and how you need to study in order to kind of reach this higher end of the contemplation of, of, of what's important or true happiness or God. Um, so uh, it, it, Hugh is unfortunately not as well known. He wrote in the 12th century uh, and is slightly uh, overshadowed by Anselm, who was a century before, and Thomas Aquinas, who was a century later. But um, I'm a big Hugh of St. Victor nerd, and so I think everybody would benefit from reading more Hugh, especially if you like the sort of medieval spin of Boethius. Mm-hmm. I think that Hugh would be sort of the next uh, natural step. Excellent. So I, I have two recommendations. They go in very different directions. One of them is so 
in theme is is deeply related. And that's it. I think that if you haven't read Plato's Crito, you should go read it because this is the dialogue in which um, Plato tries to convince Socrates to flee the city, and this is where. Um, Play, uh, Socrates actually is willing to go to his death. It's the follow-up to the Apology. And if you haven't read the Apology, it turns out that a very good podcast had an episode about that. Um, and, and you'll see, I think, a lot of parallels in in, um, in where Boethius ends up, right, uh, with, uh, with some of Socrates. Now, there's a big difference between this book and the Crito, which is the Crito basically ends with Socrates saying, like, okay, I'm going to go die now. And the, this book, uh, the Constellation of Philosophy, ends with an admonition from Lady Philosophy to, to be good, to do better, um, to take care, to be better. He says this is a necessity, but it doesn't have anything about going to his death, right? We know that, we know from history that Boethius dies. He's, um, by tradition, um, tortured. But um, we don't have, like, he does not seem to contemplate exactly how he will end, Um when in this book, that part's kind of that's kind of left unresolved. Um, there's a philosophical resolution to this book, but there's no narrative resolution. Where the Crito has a narrative resolution, it is it is, it is Socrates walking to his death essentially. And so I think it'd be interesting to pair these. But a a, a third thing I, I would I would suggest, or a second thing I I would suggest to be a third thing you could read along with Crito and the Constellation of Philosophy, is I was starting to think a lot about like great writers who wrote from prison. Uh, which can be a whole genre mm. on its own. Um, but if you want, like, a quick version of this that's not that long, um, but it's very compelling, you should read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And I think that, you know, you're not going to find super thematic parallels. The, the circumstances are different. But um, in the same way that Plato, uh, or in the same way that Boethius is able to rely on his philosophical education, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is able to rely on his grounding in. Uh, the Christian theological tradition, and also the American political tradition to still sort of make his case as he's sitting in rather awful conditions. And and so you see, I think, similarity of character or similarity of um, approach to life. And we will, of course, put links to all of those things down in the show notes. Next month, it uh, looks like we're going to have a guest, and we are talking about Beowulf, which I think is going to be a very fun episode. Um, very different than any of the philosophy stuff we've talked about so far. Our first work, no, I was going to say our first work in English. That's not true. We we talked about Frederick Douglass, and also it's like in English. Right? First work in Old English. It's our first work in Old English, um, and um, and that's going to be itself pretty cool to to hear. So um, please look forward to that in a month. Remember, these podcasts come out once a month, first Tuesday of the month, so you can see that right at the beginning of February. All right, everyone. Until next time, take care. <laughs>